live. And there's a spinning circle. And it acts like it's going out, I guess. I think it's going out. Well, hello. I'm not ready to start yet, but we're testing to try to make sure that this thing works. And uh, so I hope you're out there in the, what is this, the virtual world? Is that what we call it? I don't know. Anyway, it says live. Um, a couple people are getting on. Too good. Well, it says one. Maybe it's you. Oh. Should be. Let me see. Or go grab my iPad. We are streaming something out. And Randy Foster's live. Okay. We'll give it a couple minutes, give everybody a chance to come in. I know it's a beautiful day. People are outdoors doing whatever it is they do on a Sunday afternoon. <clears throat> I mowed my yard. Um, I thought that was going to do okay, but by the time I was done, I was pretty wore out. And uh, I got attacked by all the trees, and a couple of scrapes on the arms. So, but it's still a beautiful day. I don't know if it's supposed to rain. Is it supposed to rain? I don't know. Anybody bring donuts for class? Guess not. We should have virtual donuts. How could you do that? Uh, you get it working? Oh, if you're watching right now and you were in the main service this morning at church, you physically were there, uh, let me know. I'd like to know who all was there. Um, be kind of curious to know how many people from our class went. I know Ray was there. He's in the sound booth, of course. Jamie, I believe, was in, I'm not sure if Jamie was in the sound booth or not. Um, <clears throat> but um, it seems to be going well for what we got going on, uh, the social distancing is working, and I know it, might, it helps Brian to be able to preach to a to a living ear uh, and a you know, willing heart, and so I know that he appreciates people that are there, and uh, so I think a couple more Sundays, and then we will be um, probably going back to one service, 10.30 like normal, and try to have everybody in one service that wants to come. So that's going to be a big deal, and that's going to be a good thing to do. Um, we do need to migrate. What's wrong? We do need to migrate to uh, being present. Uh, the way the chairs are currently set up, I think there's about 30 different groupings of chairs, two, three, five, and uh, so we could probably put... Everybody that came today was 
reported there were about 80 people between the first and second service. And um, <laughs> Gwen says he likes the haircut. I like the haircut too. I don't think I'm going to stay like this. No, I took the arrays off to clean up after taking after mowing the grass. It was pretty sweaty. Uh, so as soon as, as soon as service is over, Julie's going to put my my radiators back on. And uh, but anyway, so what, what was I saying? Um, was about eighty people were at main service between first and second. We put all of those people together. We still have room for social distancing and all of the safeguards that uh, we are trying to maintain. But eventually, we'll get to the point where we'll be able to um, have a regular service. We'll still try to do social distancing as long as the governor um, recommends it and or the CDC or whoever it is that's recommending those kind of things. Uh, so we'll continue to do those. But um, uh, one other, couple other notes. Um, you have the handout as a PDF file was emailed to almost everybody. I hope you got it. If you didn't get it, you can get it in the real life uh, Facebook group uh, under the files. You can actually download it from there. Um, but just a couple of quick things. We have uh, the Hall's cleaning team, June 21st. Yoder's cleaning team, July 25th. Men's breakfast and Bibles, June 20th. As far as I know, that's still on. Um, one thing that you may not have heard yet, I don't know Brian may have said it during the main service today, uh, Church in the Park. Church in the Park is on. Uh, we will be doing Church in the Park. We have permission from the city to do that. So there will be some differences. We are debating about whether we'll have food or not. Most likely we will not have food. You can bring your own snacks and drinks, which you probably should anyway. Uh, but the social distancing in the, in the food line would be difficult to maintain. And so we probably won't, although we may try to come up with an alternative for that. Uh, maybe a peanut butter sandwich or, a, or oh, you know, a bologna sandwich would be good. Oh, I, I got a better one for Julie loves this. This is her favorite food, a Spam sandwich with cheese. No, that's not her favorite food. But we could do that. We could make a Spam sandwich and pass them all out. But <laughs> Okay, well, enough of that. Turn over to Mark chapters, chapter 1. We're going to read through Mark chapter 1, verses 31 down through the end of the chapter. I'm going to pray. I'm um, probably not going to del- you know pause any time. So you can pray while I'm praying. I don't think that's going to be weird. But it's just really hard to know when somebody else is praying. I hate to cut people off. So um, let's just let's read through that. We'll pray, and then we'll get into the lesson. So... Mark says in verse uh, 30, 31 of chapter 1, And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the, fe- the fever lift from her or left her, and she ministered unto them. And at even, when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many that were sick, diverse diseases, and cast out many devils, and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. What a powerful statement. Let's just go down to the next town and preach the gospel. Let's just go to the next village and preach the gospel. And something that we should be doing, our study is on the furtherance of the gospel. And that's what he was doing, furthering the gospel. Verse 39, And he preached in their synagogues throughout all the Galilee and cast out devils. And there came a leper to him, beseeching him and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus, moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and touched him and said unto him, I will, be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him. And he was cleansed, and straightly charged him, and forthwith sent him away, and said unto him, See thou, say nothing to any man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. 
but he went out and began to publish it much and to blaze it abroad, um, the, and to blaze abroad the matter insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in desert places, and they came to him from every quarter. So let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we're just so thankful for this passage of Scripture, Lord, as we see um, the power of, of Jesus Christ in the word being preached and the changing of, of people's lives, just simply as the word being preached. And uh, as as you said, uh, you tell this this man that was that was cleansed to not tell anybody, to not say anything, but he was so compelled that he had to tell his story. Lord, would it be uh, such a powerful thing if you would just put into our hearts and into our our lives that we just could not stand not telling people about our salvation? That we could not, we couldn't, we couldn't refuse to say something about it. Lord, that's the attitude that we all should have. That's the desire that we should all have. That we would, that we would want to uh, publish it much. It says, and to blaze abroad the matter. What, what a, what, a, what an imagining, uh, or just, a, just, a, just looking at that word to blaze abroad the matter. Um, so much more, so much that Jesus Christ couldn't even be in the place because he was, his name was lifted up so, so far. What a powerful statement that is. And so I pray, Father, for our church, Lord, that we would be uh, blazing uh, abroad the matter of the gospel in every aspect of our lives and everything that we can do. We shouldn't let the coronavirus uh, shut us down. Uh, Lord, there's ways that we can, we, even from our own home, can get the gospel to the people that need to hear it. Help us to do that. Help us to see the power of accomplishing that and publishing it much abroad. And so we thank you so much for everything. We praise you for the the uh, lessons that we're going to learn today in the, in the book of Philippians chapter 2. We ask for your guidance and your direction. We ask, Father, that you would move in our lives. We ask that you would help us be surrendered to you, submissive to you, and be a servant to you, that you could do anything you want through us and accomplish your will, and we would not hinder it in any way, shape, or form. And we'll just thank you and praise you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so in Psalm, or I'm sorry, in Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be at today. We're not going to get very far in the chapter. And as a matter of fact, in these first few verses, we're probably going to come back to them next week as well and look at them because there's a lot of depth in this passage here. And as much as I tried to uh, drill down into the depth, there's still a lot of things that I was not able to, to get. So let's just kind of start as a... Uh, um, by way of review, so you get your hand out. Hopefully, get that off of the um, textually. And ask, it's on Facebook. Yeah, it's in the it's in the group. You can get it there. But if if that doesn't work, if you can't find it, she can get into my email and just email it to you as well. Okay, so let's just start this morning by reminding ourselves, or this evening, reminding ourselves what are we studying. The key verse uh, of uh, of our study is Philippians chapter one verse twelve, and that says, "But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather into the furtherance of the gospel." And the whole point about everything here in our title of our study is in verse twelve is to further the gospel, uh, just as we read in Mark chapter chapter one. What are we going to do to blaze the gospel in a way that people? Um, they don't need Jesus because they have us. That that's that's what the, was happening, uh, and so so that makes the entire letter about encouraging and being encouragement to engaging in the actions that further the gospel. So what is our church going to do? You know, we really we're standing on a on the precipice of a historical time, and uh, while I know we want to manage the the political and the emotional and the spiritual of all of these things. But what do we have to do to get the gospel out in, in this, in this day and age, in this circumstance? What do we have to do to further the gospel? It was Paul's lifelong desire and it should be every Christian's desire and the intent to live for the furtherance of the gospel. So we've got to find a way. We've got to find a way. And we can capitalize on what's happening 
and declare the gospel. You get one of those uh, coronavirus, coronavirus uh, tracks, uh, get a copy of John and Romans with the coronavirus covers that we made. Get them out the door. I don't know how many we have left at the, at the church, but go by the church. We can always print more. So believe me, this is not, if we run out, we're not done. Get some and pass them out. Put them places where people can read them. Hand them to people. You just, just walk up and down the street like you're begging for money and say, here. And hand, <laughs> I don't know how to do that, but, but, uh, anyway, there's just things that you can do. Um, so this letter ought to be an encouragement to us as well because we need to be a mirror of the believers found in this church. The, the church for the Philippian church was an awesome church. Uh, as a church that HBI, HBF should, should desire to want to be. So he writes this letter to encourage all the saints to stay the course and to continue to remain focused on the message of the gospel and be directed by the truth of the gospel. So this church, as I said, it's a model church. It had very little error. Um, most of the churches that Paul dealt with or wrote letters to, he wrote letters to correct their doctrine, correct their theology, correct something about them. He didn't really have to do that with this church. Philippi had nothing like those churches going on. They had one little minor thing. We're going to start talking about that today, as a matter of fact. Um, but let me give you a quick outline. Uh, you already have it, but there's four tools. Uh, I used to just refer to them as, as a, each chapter had a theme, and that's and that's true. But each each chapter has a tool. Confidence in Christ was chapter one. Tonight we're going to open up the or the beginning of chapter two, talking about the tool that we need, which is having the mind of Christ. In Philippians chapter um, chapter two verse five, Paul writes, "Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus." So the mind that Jesus had is the mind that you and I can have access to. That is an incredible thing to think about. You and I can act, we have access to the mind of to the same mind that Christ had access to. Which mind did he have access to? He had the, he had access to God's mind. That's really what the Bible is all about. It's about giving us God's mind. And so, how do we think? Uh, how we are supposed to process circumstances? Um, that's all part of our mind. When we think about things, how do we come to some sort of conclusion on dealing with a situation, especially biblically? Now, a lot of people, and I don't disagree with this at all, one way to take the Bible and put it into your mind is to memorize Scripture. So how many of us do memorize? And I have to confess, I'm not a, I'm not the memory, the memory verse person like I used to be. Uh, the last big challenging memorization task I did was I memorized the complete book of Ephesians. Uh, but I've not done anything like that. And that was many years ago, actually. But to memorize the entire book of Ephesians, that was a huge feat. But but what do we do? Why aren't we all memorizing verses? Some of us just know them. Some of us have a sharp mind. Me and not, not so much. But uh, when we have the mind of Christ, we tend to think like Christ. All of us have at some time experienced where you're kind of on the same track with somebody, where you're on the same page with somebody, um, maybe your spouse, maybe a coworker, maybe a friend, where you just kind of instantly know what that other person is thinking. You ever ask somebody, says, are you thinking the same thing that I'm thinking? You kind of hope they say yes, because it's kind of foolish <laughs> if they're not. But, uh, but that's what, that's, that's having the same mind is thinking. <clears throat> What Christ thinks about a situation, um, and so that's what it—that's what it means to have to let the mind of Christ be in you. And chapter two is about what having Christ's mind should do in your life. But we're only going to touch a small portion of it tonight. Uh, and so, what I want to talk about at the beginning here, just some, as we begin to look at some of the attitudes that Paul had and the descriptors that Paul used to talk about the, the saints at Philippi. He's really describing the saints at HBF, or he should be. These should be our descriptors. And so, as he thought about this church, Paul wrote many positive things that described his thoughts and his feelings, and he used terms and phrases in a way 
that, man, I wish he would write that about me. I wish I was this kind of person. I wish you were this kind of person. I wish that everybody in our class, everybody in our church would fit this kind of uh, descriptor. The church held a special place in Paul's life or in his heart, and he held a, sp- a special place in their heart as well. And we should be at each, the same thing. Um, see, so just consider some of the things that he said. So there's a whole list. I think you have in your hand out there some blanks and some verses right next to it. So in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says this about the saints. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Thankfulness for the work of all the saints. That's, 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 Paul was thankful. And, you know, um, we can go around into the church and we can say thanks to certain people for the tasks that they do in the church. You can say thank you to the office people. You can say thank you to the AV people. Thank you to the praise team people. And that's great. But what Paul is saying is even deeper than that. It's broader than that. He's saying thankfulness for the work of all the saints and every remembrance of, of every person. He's remembering them and he's thankful for what they have done. Now, God wants to be thankful for us. God wants to be thankful for the things that we do. The second thing that Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 4, in the very next verse, he says, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. So prayer, Paul found joy in praying for the saints at the church at Philippi. And sometimes prayers can be laborsome because people, they need prayer, you know, whether it's a medical condition, uh, maybe it's a, just a negative situation and we're praying for them and we're trying to get God to move in their life or something. But you know what? Sometimes just praying for people um, brings joy. That's what Paul is talking about in chapter 1, verse 4. In chapter 1, verse 5, he goes on and he says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. He was thankful. He was grateful. That, That would be the word you put in your blank. Gratefulness for their consistency and their endurance in dispatching the gospel. This church, they didn't mess around. Their desire was to further the gospel. Their desire was to transmit the, trans, transmit the gospel as best they could. And Paul was grateful for their attitude. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 8, he goes on, he says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the, in the bowels of Jesus Christ. There was a genuine love that Paul had for this church. The love's in your blank in verse 8. There was a genuine love for this church. Verse 5 was gratefulness. Um, so, there's, there's, you know, I don't know, I don't know about you. I love HBF. Um, I have for a long time. I love the people at HBF. I love our attitude. I love the, the heart that we have, the passion that we have as a church. And so, there's a genuine love for, for HBF in my heart. Paul had a genuine love for the church of Philippi. At Philippi, um, many of the things that we've already looked at, these are great things to talk about as far as talking about the saints in the church. And he goes on and he says in Philippians 1.19, he says, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He counted on their prayers for him as well. Now, uh, he prayed for them. He knew that they prayed for him. But he counted on their prayer. It was important for him to know that they prayed. And in um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, it goes, it says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now also, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so there's a steadfast obedience. That's the blank. Obedience in the, as the pattern of their thinking. <clears throat> I got a couple more, and this is just Paul talking about the church. Just, he's saying some really positive things about the church. And this is what every saint should find some way that they could be described this way. Now, I'm not trying to say that we need to be arrogant about our behaviors or prideful about our behaviors. But the things that we do should motivate people to think about us in this way. Philippians 3.16, 
Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. So their lives were governed by a like-minded standard. Um, A church that is divided over its standard of theology, its standard of doctrine, its standard of ministry, execution, they are not united. They're, They're a problem. So the church in Philippi was governed by a mind... Um, by like-minded standard. And the last one, Philippians 4.10, says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at, as at the last your care of me had flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Their uh, support of his needs were also a joy. They supported missionaries. We're going to be talking about missionaries and the missionaries that we have in our church and the relationships that we have. Because we realize that we need to begin to help all of our believe all of our church members get to know our missionaries better, understand the the field that they're in, understand the work that they're doing, the sacrifice that they have paid to get to where they're at, and uh, and just to be a part of what they all do. You get letters from missionaries through me. I send out as many newsletters as I can. One of the reasons I do that is so that you read them and so you get to know their missionaries that we have as partners. Okay, so so this is Paul's descriptive of the, of the church, of the saints at the church, and it's a descriptive of who we should be as well. So Paul had little to say that was not positive. I mean, I don't know how many that is. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight or, eight or nine, and there's others that I didn't bother to add to the list. Um, descriptors of, a, of, the, of the saints at Philippi and uh, how Paul viewed them and how we we should we should possess our our life, our attitude, the things that we do should look like this, not for our pride, but for the fel- for the fellowship and for the the furtherance of the gospel. So he had little to say that was not positive. He knew that they had they had great leadership. He mentioned that in chapter one at the beginning. He mentioned about the deacons and the bishops. Um, uh, he knew that they were doctrinally grounded because there was little that was addressed in the matter of doctrinal position. He didn't have to deal with doctrine in this letter. I mean, he might touch on doctrine, but he wasn't like correcting their errors on doctrine. Um, there was little that needed to be corrected at all, and that is a sign of a spiritually healthy church with no immorality to drag them down. There was, and I've mentioned this already the last couple of weeks, but there there was one weakness it was a gap in humility leading to a gap in unity. So a little bit of a gap that that I mean, the devil does this. The devil finds a gap. He finds a crack. He finds a, a finger hole like, you know, if somebody is trying to climb a rock wall, they got to get a little finger hole. They just get the tip of their finger in there, and then they hang their, their entire body weight on that until they can climb that wall. That's the devil. He finds a, a, a gap. And he works his way in there, and he destroys as best he can. Um, and so um, this weakness, this gap in humility, is really what we want to talk about tonight uh, as a starting point of, the, of, of unity. So with all that was positive in the church, the almost impossible thing to think about was to imagine a lack of unity. If everything was going well and everybody's matching up in this descriptors list that Paul's given to us, why are we having a problem? Because man is man. Man has sin in his heart. And so unity, uh, the word unity, uh, is a word that means joined as a whole. Uh, and, um, it means singularity or oneness. Uh, and it implies a consistent harmony of all the parts. Uh, I'm not a musical person. I don't know what harmonies are. Um, I know when I was in the Navy and we looked at harmonics and we can measure the harmonics or the, the multiples of a sound. It's the same sound, but it's multiples up higher, like an octave, I believe. Um, and uh, uh, But there's a oneness in those octaves. There's a oneness in those harmonics that everything connects together. But that was the problem. It really wasn't working that way in the in the church as much as it should have been. And so... 
there was not a consistent harmony of all the parts, and no matter how small, that, that chink in the armor of unity can wreck a church or a ministry or a family. So Paul saw this. He commended them for the harmony that they had, but he said, hey, be, you got to be careful. So by the time we get into chapters 3 and 4, we'll see a little bit more of that. But anyway, so unity is this, is this joined to the whole. If you look over at Philippians, not Philippians, but Psalm chapter 133. It's one of the shortest psalms in the Bible. It's three verses. But it says in Psalm chapter 133, verse 1, it's a song of degrees of David. It says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. I, I just, I love that passage, the idea that we would dwell together in unity, which is what Paul was wanting the church to do, which is what God wants the church to do, which is what we should want the church to do. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because when we're all unified, we're bonded together in peace. We don't have peace when we're not unified. Because when we're distracted by differences, whatever that difference may be, peace is at stake, lack of peace. So in Ephesians 4, 3, the word unity, um, right there in the middle of the verse, it's translated as referring to Unity of affection, unity of confidence, and a unity of love. So it's not just a, a singularity. In essence, it's a, it is a, uh, a unity of affection, unity of love. So we have, we have to think about each other the same way. Uh, it means, what, what, it, what it means, that word unity in Ephesians 4.3, that Christians should be united in temper and in tone and in affection and not be split up into factions or parties. Uh, well, wouldn't it be great if the government was that way? If our government was was all unified, wouldn't that be an amazing thing? Can you imagine how much stuff could get done uh, if everybody was unified in our government? Uh, that would just be tremendous. But that's not the way it is, and unfortunately that gives us a great contrast between how a church ought to run versus how man's organization should run. Um, so when I say temper, I'm not talking about, you know, your angerness or, or you have a temper problem or something. There's a temper. The word temper means uh, how bendable are you? How flexible are you? How how easily are you, are you bent without breaking? Temper. Uh, every, every knife, every sword, every knife gets... Uh, they get made, and then they get heated, and they get tempered. And that tempering gives them a little bit of flexibility to bend them. Uh, tone and affection. So it may, not, it may be implied here, as it is undoubtedly true, that Christ, Christ-like unity would be produced through the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's got to lead, the, lead that, and we, so that means we've got to follow the Holy Spirit leading. The Trinity, the Trinity is a perfect example of the unity of the Spirit. I don't know if you've ever thought about the Trinity, but John chapter 17, verse 21. Look over there real quick. John 17, verse 41. This is Jesus Christ is preaching um, one of the last prayers that he preached before he was arrested. John chapter... Um, I lost my place in my notes. Did I turn the page? 17. Yep, sorry. John seventeen twenty one, and it says that they may all be one, that they may all be one, everybody, as thou, Father, art in me, one with me, and I in thee, one with you, that they also may be one with us, the body, the, the, the believers uh, united with us as the Trinity, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. That's the unity that we should have, not only just not only with the mind of Christ, but with the leadership of, of the Holy Spirit and the power of the of the of, of the Godhead. So unity, unity then is eminently desirable to honor the gospel. And as you look at that, look at look at John chapter seventeen verse twenty one again. Look at the end of the verse, and notice that Jesus declares a unity of the Trinity. And unity of the body of Christ affects the belief in the world, and a lack of unity hinders believing. Notice what it says. After that colon, there's a colon, 
And then it says, that the world may believe that thou hast sent us. So if there's not unity in understanding that the Trinity is a unity, and that we are unified with the Trinity, then it affects what people believe about the gospel. If we're if we're not in, if we're not unified, our disunity keeps people from believing the truth, and we will never fulfill the gospel. We'll never further the gospel the way we want to if we are not unified. If we are not accomplishing what God wants us to accomplish, I just think that's a powerful statement right there. And as I was typing this uh, yesterday on my in my I was typing it in the, and I said. That the world may believe. I'm like, Whoa, wait a second. I've never read that before that way. That's a powerful statement. Okay, so we'll go back to Philippians chapter um, chapter 2. So in verses 1 to 4, we're going to look at verses 1 to 4. We're going to break that down. We're going to go back and look at verses 1 to 4 again. And then uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about verses 5 to 8. And then next week we're going to break down verses 5 to 8 because there's a lot of theological teaching there that I just can't get to tonight. And so anyway, okay, so there, if there be unity, verses 1 to 4, if there be unity. So and there's a mutual attraction to bond our unity. There needs to be mutual attraction. So the people, the saints that were described as Paul's prescription of the saint, if everybody looked that way, we would want to merge with people who are like-minded as us, starting with Christ. And if I am, if I am with Christ, you're with Christ, they have the mind of Christ. We should all be together. So Paul wanted this church to be filled with saints, serving together, as they are unified by Christ, who has brought them together and compelled their attraction to each other because they're pulled by the same power. That spiritual power is pulling each other together, bringing us together to be unified in one. To be clear, unity in the church is inward. You cannot have unity with people outside the church. You could have unity... Church and church could be unified in thought. But I'm talking about the believers. The saints can't be really unified with people who are not saints. It just doesn't work. Uh, so to be clear, that's the case. Um, and it's not a verbal um, unity or like, okay, let's just band together. I believe what you believe. You believe what I believe. Let's, just, let's work together. It's not quite like that. It's not verbal. It's heartfelt. It's a union of heart a mind and soul in the common cause. And we're not unified because we are all in the same church, but we are unified because we are pulled by the same power of, the, of Christ to the same end. And so the saints are bound together by what Christ, or what could be called uh, a container. Now, this, I mean, so I'll see if I can explain this the best way I can. I didn't put it all down in my notes, but there's like, um, imagine for a moment you have a, a, a bag and the bag is full of marbles. So or all the marbles are inside there, but they're held together by the bag. That doesn't make everybody unified. It's, it's more of the, that uh, the saints are bound together by what, what could be called uh, a, uh, an attraction, a, a, a pulling together, like a magnet. So if if inside the bag, all you had were uh, metal 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 marbles or ball bearings, or, and you dropped a magnet inside there, and then you took the took the bag away, well, they're not all going to scatter. They're going to stay there because of the power of the magnet pulling everybody all the mag all the balls together. That's the that's the unity that we need to have here. So the container does not hold the saints together in unity by an external pressure. Instead, there's an attraction, a magnetism that pulls the saints together. We need to be pulled together for the same purpose because we believe the same things, because we have the same attitude, have the same desire. We want the gospel to be furthered. How do we do that? We bond together, magnet, we magnetize ourselves together, and draw together so we can serve together. And the power that pulls one saint to unity with Christ should have the same effect on another saint pulling that saint to Christ as well, because the same force of Christ is pulling through each other. Okay, so Paul says in verse 1, chapter 2, 
If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels of mercy. Okay, so he uses these expressions. There's four of them there. So what is he talking about? The word consolation in Christ. The word consolation means to be an encouragement by coming alongside to help. The Holy Spirit, uh, is. there's the Greek word paraclete. In John chapter 15, verse 26, it's the same word comforter. The title of the Holy Spirit, he is the comforter. He is the um, the consolation in Christ. So Paul's suggestion is that our walk with the Lord should be, in a, be an admonition or an encouragement to all the saints. The things that you do ought to encourage other saints to do more. Instead of saying, hey, that was great, keep up, keep, keep, keep doing that job, you keep, keep going, you keep going. It's like... Wow, that was awesome what you did. I want to be a part of what you did. I want to do what you did. I want to do it in a different place. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about, the, the, the consolation, encouragement. So Paul's suggestion is that our walk with the Lord should be an admonition to all the saints. And we as believers must be able to come up alongside another saint and encourage them. You know, um, sometimes people are trying to do things and they just need to be encouraged. Um, because without that encouragement, they don't know if they're even doing the right thing. So consolation in Christ should stir the heart toward a common unity in the body of the Spirit of God. Okay, then he says in the second part of verse two, verse 1, if, there in, if any comfort of love, so comfort of love, so to be loved by Christ must literally move us to unity. Hey, the... The Son of God loved you, and that ought to move you, that ought to motivate you to do something. Christ comforted us by saving us, amen, by giving us a new life, by cleaning us up, by changing our heart and changing our mind, all undeserved by grace alone. Now let me read that again, because this this is what Christ did for you through grace. He He comforted you by saving you. He reached down into you, to the pit where you were going to die and go to hell and be separated from God for eternity. And he, ta- he came down there and he saved you and he gave you a new life. You know, um, was, I never get this right. Is it 2 Corinthians 15? Uh, oh, we have, we're a new creature. Um, well, how's that verse go? It's 15, 17 or 17, 15, or 15, 17. Um, that's terrible. See, that's I'm a bad memory person, first person. But um, gosh, it'll come. Um, we're a new creature in Christ. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's paraphrased. But anyway, we're a new creature uh, because of what Christ did for us. Uh, we're cleaned up. What does it say? As we are given a new life. Sorry, I'm just not good at memorizing. Anyway, that's a poor excuse, though. I should be better than that. And I should, knowing that I need to memorize verses, I should work harder. I shouldn't just use the excuse, well, I'm just not any good. I should work hard at that. Okay, and so, um, so what does it mean for us? What does it mean to us, this personal comfort that comes from Christ himself? How do we respond to that kind of love? What are we going to do? It is without a doubt the most important reason that we love and serve him because he first loved us, right? Uh, in 1 John 4:19, we love him because he first loved us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. We don't live unto ourselves. We live unto Christ. He loved us enough to die on the cross for our sin, to change us and make us a new person, to clean us up, to give us give us new garments, all of that, and we're not going to serve him. We're not going to propel the gospel. We're not going to live in unity with him and with others. What do we? Who do we think we are? Anyway, um, okay. Uh, and so, first, Second Corinthians five fifteen. He died for all that we, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And then he says in verse. One, he goes another phrase, if any fellowship of the Spirit. So fellowship 
implies a partnership, a communion, or, uh, or you could describe it as a shared life, fellowship, shared life. The word fellowship develops a picture of the Trinity being involved in your unity. The Trinity is involved in your unity in your church. The consolation of Christ is the Son. The comfort of love is the Father. And the fellowship is the Spirit. So those three things we just looked at in verse 1, that's the Trinity's contribution to our unity. Consolation of Christ is the Son. Comfort of love is the Father. Fellowship is the Spirit. So it should... So the question then would be, should it mean anything that the Trinity has invested, that the Trinity, that the Godhead, has invested into you spiritual blessings to provide you power, strength, counsel, and comfort? If they've done that, what are you going to do with those, with those tools? What are you going to do? What does it mean for your actions toward the unity of the body and furtherance of the gospel? Are you going to have a unified body? Are you going to further the gospel? And then, and then at the very end, he says something that, most people don't understand the words. He says, if any, bowels and mercies. So what is he talking about, bowels and mercies? The word bowels. And that would be literally your your intestinal, your, your gut. Um, that would be the bowel. The, you know, that's, um, and so what is it, how is he referring to that? It always refers to the gut. But to be specific, it's, it refers to the seat of your emotions, to your passions. Because everybody knows when when something just goes negative, your gut starts to hurt. You get a little queasy in the stomach, you know, you get an upset stomach or something like that. Your bowels are are being affected. And so the word mercy, uh, mercy is the compassionate, merciful. I want to re- give you all of this: compassionate, merciful motivations that you possess for all the saints to experience the unity found in Christ. So if there's any bowels and mercies, so if there's any emotions, any compassions, any motivations, you should do something about that, work towards unity. And then verse 5, goes on down to verse 5, and uh, he says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. That's our key verse for this chapter. Executing on, on unity. Recognize the excellence of what we have through Christ to each other and fulfill the expectations of what we must be doing in all of this. Let me back up for a second. So there's five things about executing in unity um, because of this verse. So first is recognize the excellence of what we have through Christ. Recognize the excellence. Second, fulfill the expectations of what we must be doing. Third, resolve to serve together in one mind, one spirit, one in one accord. The fourth one is to resist selfishness and avoiding vainglory. And I already mentioned that earlier. We don't want to get into vainglory and selfishness, pridefulness over what kind of unified saint we are. And then the last one, number five, is remember the needs of others. Okay, so uh, so we have those those first five, but now I want to back up to verse two again. Because he says in verse 2, Fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord or one mind. So be like each other. In verse 2, he wants us to see people who by the power of Christ are drawn together because they are drawn to Christ through each other. Every person that got saved got saved because they were drawn to Christ by somebody or at the, at the assistance of somebody. So as good as this church is, as zealous as the church is, as loving, as courageous as this church is, there's a potential for discord in the unity of the body. In chapter 1, verse 27, if you go back, just look at chapter 1, verse 27 for just a moment. Notice that it says, Only let your conversation be as it become the gospel of Christ, that whether I come to see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. But then if you drop down to verse 2, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, if there be therefore any consolation. The word therefore, every time you see the word therefore, it's connected back to something in the previous context, maybe in the same context. But this is, 
this therefore in chapter 2, verse 1, is connecting us to chapter 1, verse 27. <clears throat> so there's a formula here for spiritual unity. I'm going to give you the formula. The key is the word in verse 1, which is therefore, uh, which leads us back to one verse 27. And then Paul, the second part of, the, of this formula is that Paul always sought for unity in chapter 1, and now he gives instruction on how to have this unity here in this chapter. The heart of these first verses are found in, in verse 2, that ye be like-minded. What God wants all of us to do is to be like-minded. The heart of these of this of these first verses is found that, that you be like-minded. So what Paul wants to see are the people who are drawn by the power of Christ through each other in a magnetic attraction. We talked about the magnetic thing a minute ago. A magnetic attraction that is essential to the effectiveness of the church to further the gospel. And the word accord in chapter in verse two, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. That's an interesting word. While the English word accord is seen many times in the New Testament, especially in the first 10, 12 chapters of the book of Acts, and they were gathered together in one accord, in one accord, in one accord, in one accord. So while the English word accord is seen many times, the usage of the word is different here than it is in other places. Here it means to be joined at the soul leading to a mutual acting out together as if one soul has actuated everything. So they're not just in one accord, like, okay, everybody came together to the same place, and they're all in one accord. That's not what it means here in chapter 2, verse 2. What he means with the one accord is, is that there, we are all linked by one soul. Um. It's a concept, it's not an actual thing. Obviously it's not actual, but that soul would be the Holy Spirit of God, if you want to look at it that way. So uh, Paul wants us wants to see people who are drawn by the power of Christ uh, through a mutual magnetic attraction that's essential for the effectiveness of the church to further the gospel. Uh, I think I backed up a little bit too far, but let me read this, this thing about um, the word accord. It means to be joined at the soul, leading to a mutual acting out together as if one soul has actuated them. That's unity in the body of Christ, where you know that God wants you to do something, but he also wants these people to do something. What he wants both people to do the same thing, and they come together in unity to do the same thing. They are both motivated by one soul, and that soul is the Trinity. So it's not what you get to do, and I agree with you, and so I want to help you, that's unity, but that's not the unity that Paul is talking about here. It's, it's being motivated by the same power to do the same things, to get the same things accomplished. So this one accord is, is a common soul being moved for the same purpose. So we all should have the same motivating factors coming from the Trinity to accomplish the Trinity's work by him moving us, and we're all moving in the same direction. And then he says in verse 3, there's some motives for, for, for unity. It says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. It's critically important that we understand the motives for unity in our church. What are the motives? Why, why do we need to be unified? Why, why can't we just do the things that we think we need to do? So it's critically important that we understand, because without understanding unity, we begin to lose motivation to preserve unity. When when we think that our our driving force is more important than your driving force or their driving force, like well, my ministry ought to get more money than them, or my ministry ought to get more more accolades than them, or I mean, don't go down that path, because it's going to take the motivation away from everybody else. So the motives of, of unity answer the question of why we should seek after unity. The marks of unity answer the question of what we're trying to get done. The means of unity answer the question of how. 
And then why do we seek unity? What is unity and how do we experience it at church? We'll be answering those questions um, over the next couple of weeks as well. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at all of this in detail to understand how to be like-minded, have the same love, be of one accord and one mind. And then, so like I said, there's a lot here in these in these first eight verses. We're not going to get through tonight. Um, so verse four, um, there's an importance of being like-minded. So to be like-minded means to be of the same mind on a topic, and it means that you think the same thing. Second Corinthians thirteen eleven. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. So the, for the church at Corinth, uh, they were nowhere near the same mind. Even though that verse is in Second Corinthians, they had nowhere near the same mind. They were distracted and divided over many topics. Being like-minded, though, is to have unity of sentiment, a unity of opinion, a unity of a plan to prevent schisms, um, and, or in, any contention, allowing the body to be harmonious in the work of the furthering of the gospel. Just ask yourself a question. If you recognize that there was a problem between you and another brother or sister in Christ, and it was affecting unity, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to do anything about it? Or are you going to say, well, that person's wrong, and we'll just discount them, and I'm obviously correct, I'm obviously the right one, I'm obviously the one that needs to be promoted. We can't go there. We have to say, I'm going to solve the problem of unity in my church, whether it's between me and another brother or sister that we just don't get along. And there's people in our church, as much as I love HBF, there are people in our church that do not get along with each other, and they will walk around the room. They'll go completely through another door so they don't have to say anything to that person or see him or look at that person. And that is so sad. I don't think it's happening today, but I know it has happened. Um, <clears throat> verse 5. Verse 5 goes on again. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So verse 5 is an exhortation of unity to the illustration of of, of unity. So we have exhortation. Everything that we've talked about is an exhortation towards unity. But what is the illustration that we have? What is the example that we have? We have Christ as the example, and that's what the rest of this section is about, and that's why it's so important. We have this. We have Christ. He's the model of humility through selflessness. He self-sacrificed. He self-denied. He self-gave. Verses 5 to 8 actually describe an attitude that we should possess to be both humble and unified in the furtherance of the gospel and living in our, live just doing what we need to do. Isn't that incredibly amazing? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, be, be, be followers of me as I follow Christ. He's following Christ. Paul was the sacrificial giver. He did everything that he did to be unified with the body of Christ, with Christ. And now he's saying, do what I do because I'm doing what he's doing. And so here's the example and what he is doing. So uh, the attitude is to, is to do nothing from selfishness. Don't do anything from pride or conceit. Our attitude is described in verse 2, to be of one mind, one body, one or one accord, one body. And this means to come into this unity is, is in verses 3 and 4, starting with the humility that moved Christ. In Matthew, if you flip over to Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, verse says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. In this verse here, Jesus encouraged us to follow his example, and Paul's as well, uh, by taking upon us his yoke. And then he goes on in verse, let's go back to Philippians 2 again, and we'll finish up in verses 6 to 8. Verse 6 says, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
So in these verses here, we have the steps of a humble uh, unity that Christ developed for us and established for us, gave us a picture of of what we should do. So in verse 6, Christ started his humbleness first. What did he do? Well, he was God. What did he do? He stepped out of the loftiness of, of, the, of the throne of God and came down into a sin-filled place called the earth. That was the first thing. That was the first thing that he did to give up. To to to, to he could have just stayed there. He said, "I'm not going down there. I'm not going where those people are going." He could have said that, but he didn't. So we also start from a lofty place, don't we? Because we're all sons of God, but we still should step down, take a step down. In verse seven. Uh, he emptied himself. He gave up heavenly glory. In John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5, talk about him giving up heavenly glory. He gave up his authority and had to learn obedience. Isn't that amazing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the, 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 God, of, the God himself, had to learn obedience? He had to actually learn what it, mean, what it meant to be obedient. And that's in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Let's just look at that. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And he suffered those things because he stepped down in humility to be unified with the believers so that they could be saved. He furthered the gospel by his life. So, uh, and then uh, let me just wrap all of this up. He gave up his divine nature and he limited his attributes. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, we don't need to take the time to turn there. But it says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. People like to challenge, well, how come if he was God, how come he doesn't know everything? He even admitted that he doesn't know everything. Yeah, he did do that. He limited his divine attributes. He limited his all-powerful knowledge so that he could step down from what he was to what he would become so that you and I would receive the gospel. And in verse 8, um, at the end, verse 8, but that which bear thorn, chapter, Philippians 2, 8, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So Christ was found in fashion as a man and humbled to death on the cross. Now, if you look at verse 7, it says that he was made in the likeness of men. But in verse 8, it says that he was um, found in fashion as a man. So the likeness and fashion of, of a man. And um, so in the, in the verse 7, he's the likeness of men. But verse 8, he's the fashion as a man. So he is seen as someone who stood in the place of the center, likeness. But he also recognizes the significance of this humble action. And he went to death. The fashion of a man. He died for somebody else. And so those two, those two aspects of him becoming a man. So basically what, it, what I'm trying to say is that at that point is that humanity saw the death of Jesus Christ where he was like a man, but he was fashioned as a man. He suffered as a man. He, he, he bled and he suffered in pain and, and agony and he died. And that's what makes Man realized the amount of sacrifice that Christ paid so that we could be saved. Okay, so let me wrap this up and we'll be done. The unity of the church is not driven homeward or not driven home hard. Instead, it is supplied by a love and a mercy and a compassion. And finally, with a sense of devotion to the Godhead. So there's a connection. You, your unity in the church at HBF or whatever church you're going to today, um, your unity is linked to your relationship to the Godhead. And if you don't see your connection to the Godhead, you, how are you going to see your connection to another, to another saint? If we're unwilling to dwell in unity, like Psalm chapter 133 says, tell, um, 
we need to do a heart check on ourselves. We really need to find out what is our problem. So our unity must draw as a magnet, not repel. One thing the magnets do is they can repel, but magnets don't always repel. Most of the time they, they attract. So that's the, that's the beginning of chapter 2. We didn't get all the way through verse 8 very, very far. We have a lot more to cover. We'll break it all down next week and look at it some further. If you have any questions, send me an email. Any questions, anything, any prayer requests? I didn't ask for prayer requests before we got done. Uh, tomorrow, yeah, tom- Tuesday, I'm going in for my third round of Aviston treatments. Um, I don't think I had any symptoms from my second round, which was two two weeks ago or three weeks ago? Three weeks ago. The only symptom that I have weird today is a very a sensitivity to cold in my mouth. Uh, so if I'm eating anything cold, it's not just my teeth. It's every my whole mouth just hurts from eating cold. I don't know why. I've never had that problem before. Um, but be in prayer for all of us. Be in prayer for the class. Be in prayer for those who uh, want to be at church but can't. Be in prayer for those who are sick, those who are compromised. Uh, be in prayer for those who do not know the gospel. They're compromised too. So let's let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the passage of Scripture that we've looked at in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Thank you for the example of your Son giving us uh, everything that we need to know, Lord, to be unified uh, in uh, one mind, one one accord, one body, to accomplish the furtherance of the gospel. We just love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, see you guys later. Love you all.